Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Friday, Friday, Friday. And today my guest on the happy hour is Daniel Hill. Daniel is the author of White Awake, which I read this summer and also has a new book out called White Lies. I devoured his book White Awake earlier this summer and I have been so excited to have this conversation with him. In today's episode, Daniel talks to us about growing up as a pastor's kid, walking away from the church and coming to Jesus again in his 20s. Daniel also dives deep into his journey of coming face to face with a culture of white supremacy and realizing how many things in his life he never had to think about as a white male. He's a pastor of River City Community Church, which is located in Chicago. And today on the show, he talks about the distinct culture of American Christianity and the reasons why there's pushback on race within evangelical spaces. This conversation has proven to be difficult over and over. And we see so many Christian leaders coming under fire and attack as a result of being outspoken on the issues surrounding race. I really appreciated Daniel's words when he said, racism is built on a set of lies and lies belong to the evil one. It seems simple to grasp when you say it that way. And yet I think we still personally, as a country, as churches, we still have a long way to go as we continue to fight for the things that Jesus deeply, deeply cares about. I'm thankful for Daniel's boldness and passion for racial unity. It's an encouragement to me. My hope is that all of us, myself, you, everyone that's listening, that we would continue to seek Christ and allow him to lead our steps towards reconciliation. No matter how far you think you've come in this conversation over the past year, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, or Maybe you're feeling, I have so far to go right now, and you might just realize that. I want to encourage you, we're all on this journey, and we can seek Christ in every step towards reconciliation. Friends, I got to ask you a question. Have you subscribed to our YouTube channel? YouTube is a place I'm excited to talk with you about. We share clips of interviews over there all the time. We have some clips over there of our home remodel. We have some family fun that we did during quarantine videos up there. We've got some karaoke videos with me and my daughter that you love, but there's two things coming up that you're going to want to make sure that you are subscribed to our YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. It's easy. Find the subscribe button. It's right there. Get lost in the videos. Have fun. But here's what you need to know. In one week from today, we release our holiday gift guide. Yes, you'll be able to listen to it in your ears, but also you'll be able to watch the gift guide be recorded. You'll see videos of the items. So you might hear about them, then you get to see them. You don't want to miss it. Remember, it's youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. Subscribe. Also, I can't say much and that feels weird to say anything at all, but we have something super fun coming in 2021 that is going to be on YouTube and I cannot wait for you to see it, but make sure you're subscribed. Then you won't miss anything. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Daniel. Thank you for leaning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of these conversations. I value them and I think they're so important for us as we grow as people who look more like Jesus. So here it is, Daniel Hill. Daniel, welcome to the happy hour. Jamie, it's such an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Appreciate your ministry, your books, and so happy to be here. I want to tell people how I found out about you because people send their stuff to me, like publicists will send me stuff and be like, hey, you should talk to this yeah. person. Not you. I don't know how I found out about your book, Wide Awake. In fact, tell me when your book, Wide Awake, came out. 2017. 2017. Okay. So I have had this book on my bookshelf for a while. And I picked it up this summer and I was showing it to you before we started. It is like kind of raggedy now because I read it at the pool, which mm-hmm. is the best place to read books, in my opinion, mm-hmm. hands down. Well, yes. the pool and then the beach is right after that. And then on a boat. I mean, can you tell I like the water, Daniel? So I devoured this book and I reached out to you and said, I need to talk to you. So that's how you got here. And I'm <laughs> so glad you're here. Thank you. Okay. So um, give everybody just a little overview of your world. Like, what do you do? Where do you live? I know you're outside Chicago. Give us the insight into your life. Yeah. I'm 47 years old, been in Chicago all my life. You're like a Chicago native? I actually am. Yeah. I grew up wanting badly to get out and just never did. And I think it's too late for me now. (laughs) I think I'm too rooted now. You're stuck. Um, 
Yeah. So evangelicalism is deep in my blood. I was not only the son of a pastor, but of a fairly famous scholar who um, did a lot of, actually did a third ever study Bible out on the market. So I must have said normal words before this, but the first word I actually have a conscious memory of is Dikayo Sune. That wanted me to embrace, um, although even that I, I contend with because he told me that was righteousness. Little did I know that can also be translated justice. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. Um, so grew up, you know, in Chicago land, uh, five younger brothers and sisters, was did not want to be in the church world, didn't like church. So I was in the business world all through college the first few years after. I was part of three dot com startup dot coms. Ended up having kind of a big comeback to Jesus moment. Ended up working at Willow Creek Community Church, which is a at the time was one of the largest evangelical mega churches in the country. And then in January of 2003, planted the church I'm at now, River City Community Church, which is in the Humble Park neighborhood of Chicago, uh, generationally generationally poor, about half black, half Latino neighborhood. My wife's a professor of psychology. I've got an 11 year old and an eight year old. That's me. I love your life. Okay, but I do. Before we jump into all the things you're doing pastorally and writing books and talking about very important conversations, are you a Cubs or a White Sox fan? You know, I know that's the, and it is the genuine reputation. You're supposed to like one or the other, but I grew up in the South Side, which meant I was supposed to be a White Sox fan. But back then they were on cable and the Cubs were on WGN. So I grew up falling in love with the Cubs, not knowing I was supposed to have my loyalties in order. So I like them both. I root for them both, which makes me atypical, but yeah. The I'm Cubs because your family didn't Chicago. have cable. Is that why? Yeah. So they're on WGN. So yeah, I grew up watching them before I knew I was supposed to hate them. So that, was, that is hilarious. Yeah, I, I don't know about attached. the rivalry there. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause the South sides grittier and poor in Chicago and that's where the White Sox stadium is and the Cubs are in the like heart of Preppyville. Yeah. So if you're a South Sider, you definitely can't like this for the Cubs, which I didn't know yet. So I really liked them. <laughs> it was too late by the time I found out. It's like interesting that even sports are divided uh by I know. you know a I line know. in There's the sand in the city. Yeah. It's so <laughs> interesting. It's yeah. interesting. Well I want to jump in. First I want to ask you this before we talk about your books. You said you had this kind of coming back moment and you ended up being a pastor and never thought you were going to be a pastor. You were in the business world. What was that for you? It's the most Pentecostal moment I've ever had. The only reason I was going to Willow Creek was they started a 20-something ministry there. So I was disavowed from going back to church. But they had all these 20-somethings. I was like, man, I'm terrible picking up girls in clubs. Like, I know how <laughs> church world works, right? There's like, I can do you're this. half spiritual leader and half a little bit rebellious, right? It's like, uh, can't can't be in evangelical space. So that's the only reason I went. Um, so they used to have this Saturday night 20-something service. And like a couple months in, I, so I used to go to a nightclub right after that. It was at 7 o'clock and I'd go clubbing afterwards. And like, I had like an Isaiah 6 kind of a moment, the glory of God just like got revealed to me. A terror swept over me. I went straight home to my apartment, knelt at my bed, and I said, I feel like I've seen you. I feel like you've just told me. I, for whatever reason, I feel like God graciously let me toe the line for a long time. And then there's just like this reckoning one night where mm. it was like, you don't get to toe the line anymore. You're either in or out. That's literally the words I heard from God is you're either in or you're out. Tonight you get to decide. And um, that was weird. It's like growing up as a pastor's kid, I never felt like I had a very transformational moment. But that moment actually became yeah. my line in the sand where like I knew God was real and I knew I didn't want to mess around with kind of the holiness of God. I knew I needed to be all in from that moment. And I was from that moment on. Did you go to the club that night or no? I did not go to the club that <laughs> night. No. no. You're like, God, I'm in. I'm not going to the club. This is my first sign <laughs> yes. to you that I am that's really right. in. That's right. My first step. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's interesting. You know, my husband grew up as a pastor's kid and would say that he didn't start following Jesus till he was in college. And I grew up in a Christian church. Like I've been to church all my life and did not start following Jesus till I was in my 20s. And, you know, you're raising pastor's kids. I'm raising pastor kids. And it's this this idea that we want our kids to have their own faith. And so um, yeah. I'm thankful for your story and my story. And I pray for all of our kids, my four and your two, that they will also have that, that fear yes. and that desire to be all in. So that was just a side parent moment between the two of us raising pastor's kids over here. Okay, Daniel, talk to me about White Awake. This is your book that I devoured this summer that I told you. And the subtitle is An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. And so where did this idea for this book even come from? And I think it goes back to you pastoring, but talk us through where this even came from. Yeah, well, that was, you know, so I just kind of told you I was 22 when I had that comeback to Jesus moment. Ended up shortly after working at Willow Creek, which is its own bizarre story. But when I was 24 years old, I did my first cross cultural wedding, which wasn't a big deal at the time, but it was a white woman and a man, an Indian man whose parents were from India and he was first generation here. He said, you know, he's a good friend. He said, Dan, you're going to get a deep dive in Indian culture at this. I was like, cool, I can't wait. And so, especially at that rehearsal dinner the night before, that was where kind of they went all in. And so the music, the sounds, the smells, the food, it was just really an intoxicating experience for me. So at the end, I pulled him aside. And I said, I really want to thank you for this experience. Um, I said, obviously, as a white person, I don't have a culture. So getting a chance to experience something like this is really meaningful. 
And this guy was a it's tall, gregarious, fun-loving, never said anything serious, especially wasn't expecting this the night before his wedding. But he got very serious in that moment. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it always wins. One of the best wedding gifts you could give me would be to learn about your own white culture. Wow. And then went back off to the dance floor and uh, left me standing there, kind of like between two worlds. And yeah, I just don't know. I think it was a Holy Spirit thing in the sense that obviously growing up in America, we have the opportunity to contend with race all the time, but I just had never seriously considered it before. Mm -hmm. And so there was something about that night. It was so unsettling to me, both parts, not only that I had a culture, I just never thought of whiteness as a culture, but that notion, I mean, he just immediately introduced me to the power dynamic that when my Mm -hmm. culture comes in contact with others, it wins. And so it was half defensive, half genuine wanting to learn. And that's kind of what initiated this quest to kind of get at what he was meaning when he said, I had a culture and mine always wins. Yeah. You know, you talk about that in this book, Wide Awake, which is something that has been, <laughs> I'm about to say the most white thing ever. Here we go. It's something that my eyes were blinded to until I too was face to face with, oh, everything goes against white culture. Everything goes against whiteness. So I'll give you an example of something that I thought about. I remember when I was in high school, someone would like introduce themselves and they would have a name that sounded quote unquote different to me. And I would think, oh, that's a weird name. Right. But as when I started to have these kind of ideas and conversations about why is that a weird name? Because it's different than maybe an American name. So then it's weird. So that's an example of things that have been open to my eyes when you started walking through this kind of, okay, what is the culture here? What were some of those things that were kind of light bulb moments to you that, oh, I've never thought about this because I'm white and I've never had to think about this? Yeah. I mean, there's like the deep kind of stuff of being like where the term white came from, Mm -hmm. because like, you know, I'm Irish and, you know, that's a source of pride for, you know, my dad's side, you know, and so I'm like, I don't even like to think of myself as white, right? So even learning how the notion of whiteness came about, but then, you know, if I fast forward, you know, I went to seminary post that and, you know, it's intentionally trying to find courses where I can learn about this. I remember one of my seminary professors saying, here, let me show you one of like just the everyday forms of the way whiteness gets normalized, privileged, even attached to, you know, superiority to. He said at this seminary, he said, which I work at, I'm glad to be here. He said, but at this seminary, you can take classes on African-American theology. You can take classes on uh, Latin American theology. You can take classes on Asian American theology. Go see if you can find where the classes are in white theology. And I said, there's just normal foundational based on theology, which is the Calvins or the Luthers, or depending on what your tradition, the West or whatever it might be. But he's like, the European theologians are always considered the normal ones, like the ones that everything else is thought about in reference to. Mm. And like, I just had never thought about that. But I think that's indicative of like how a lot of we, that's a lot of indicative of how we think of worship or how we think of preaching, how we think of like ways of doing things in churches. There's kind of like the normal way, which is almost always got strong white overtones to it. And then everything else is kind of the different, maybe even the novelty, but it's because it's being thought of in comparison to the normal whiteness. Why do you, that conversation that we're having right now, I think can be a little kind of like people would shake their heads. Like, I've never had to think about this before. Mm -hmm. And that can be a little disturbing too, when you start to think like, oh, I've actually never had to think about this before. What else in my life have I never had to think about before? And so when you've had the opportunity to walk through just these ideas, this awakening, this learning with your church right now that you're pastoring and your people, I'm throwing you for a loop here, Daniel, okay? Because this just thought just came to me. Like, I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. someone who's listening to our conversation and they're going, what? Like, Mm -hmm. white is normal and everything else? Like, I don't know if I believe that. What are just like some very first steps for someone where you go, okay, just like either read this, think about this, do this. Like, what do you look, what do you say to someone who's looking at you going, this is confusing. I don't get what you're saying, Daniel. Well, I probably would start theologically with the story. You know, from White Awake that I talk about my own journey through the lens of John 3 and Nicodemus and Jesus. And he's an archetype, a prototype for me of being white in this journey, because right when we're introduced to Nicodemus in John 3, He's a good guy, right? I mean, he's taking religion very seriously. He's on the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish ruling council, like the Supreme Court of the Supreme Court. So he's the go-to guy for everything that's religiously oriented or theologically oriented. He's given his whole life to this. And he's not trying to trap Jesus when he comes home. He comes at night because he's scared of the social ramifications, but he's not trying to trap him. He even says like somebody, the, the way you connect to God is something, you know, I'm drawn towards. So you have to assume when Nicodemus came to Jesus that he expected to hear something slightly additive. Right? Like maybe if I just read a little bit more scripture or withheld a little bit more from my impulses or gave a little bit more, right? I think he's probably figuring out what's that a little bit more. Right? Of course, Jesus famously says, nobody can see the kingdom without being born again. 
right? But it completely upends Nicodemus to the point where like everything Nicodemus had done up to that point was called into question, right? And it's not really that it was on, but but the whole notion of like salvation through faith and the Holy Spirit leading and all that, right? All of that represented reality so different that Jesus kind of talked about it. Like you have to see something you can't see, right? I do think for somebody who's white and has never thought about race before, it will be that dramatic. Mm. There's really not a way around that because when you've been normalizing conditions and socialized within the system and you've never learned to theologically critique it, it's not additive. It's not like, oh, I just should be a little more kind or a little bit more thoughtful. It's like, no, if you're actually serious about this, it's going to kind of probably feel like what it felt like Nicodemus when Jesus said, yeah. look, I'll bring you on this journey. I want to bring you on this journey. I'm not even critiquing or condemning you. I'm just saying you're going to be starting all over again, right? Mm-hmm. Like to see my kingdom, you're going to be starting all over again. And I, I do think that's kind of what we have to prepare for. That's why I wrote that first one is to like, it's as much about emotionally, spiritually nurturing people on the journey as it is kind of passing on this knowledge of what it's really kind of critiquing the whole way we've come to understand kind of identity within this racial system. Yeah, I think it's important. And I think that I really think if people aren't thinking about it and aren't having conversations about it, that they're missing out on so much goodness that God has for us within our churches right now. You tell a story in here that I find quite familiar when I hear people start having a journey of understanding even whiteness and racial tensions in America going way back, you know, like my kids were just out of school for Christopher Columbus Day. And even when you start understanding the ramifications of like, oh, I don't think history is all that we've always been taught that it might be with how things have happened. You tell a story in here about at your church that you pastor that the all new members will go through a couple of weeks class about theology mm-hmm. and what your church believes in. And one of those weeks is about reconciliation, which is a big mm-hmm. word. And we're recording this, you know, in 2020, obviously, and race has been a huge conversation in 2020. And I'm grateful for that. I'm glad. I'm so happy about it. But this conversation, just for all of you that it's been going on for a long time and it should be can continue going on. But you talk about this in your class and there's a story that you share about a woman who said, she said, I love all this stuff, but every time I talk to my loved ones about reconciliation, they always say, well, I hope they're still preaching the gospel. And we hear that so often with, you know, talking about these things is veering off from the gospel. And I don't believe that to be true by any means. Tell me how you pastor your people through those thoughts of, is this veering off from the gospel of having these conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could have like a whole episode just on this one. because We could have like so a year deep. long yeah, conversation about this. <laughs> it's, it's, it is such a critical piece because at their best, you know, I, I, I still consider myself an evangelical pastor. We're part of an evangelical denomination. Not everybody has to be evangelical, but like, but whatever. I'm just saying like, I'm not even distancing us from that. At its best, I feel like evangelicalism takes the Bible very seriously, right? They see it as the high view of scripture and then sees Lord, Jesus as Lord over all and that guides their actions. And so one of the biggest fundamental theological problems we're facing is that most white Christians, particularly in evangelical or evangelization settings, have been taught that you can have a high view of scripture and see Jesus over all and have that mean nothing in terms of the system of race and the ideology mm. of white supremacy. And so therefore, you know, we're all responsible at some level as well. But, you know, there's a systemic theological failure. And the fact that we can even think like that, that you can have a high view of scripture and believe Jesus is Lord overall and not be concerned about the problem of race is so theologically problematic. And there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. But I am convinced that for somebody who's a sincere follower of Jesus, it's going to have to be a theological conversion as much as anything to see that this matters deeply to Jesus and his kingdom. And like you kind of referred to earlier, that I literally can't do any part of the great commandment fully. Right. I can't love God fully because I haven't contended with race. I can't love my neighbor fully because I haven't contended with race. I can't love myself fully, actually, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've taken in that I don't even know how to get back out because I have no theological language for it. Mm. You know, I feel like a lot of people, their pushback to that, which I've heard, would be, well, I don't have any problems to deal with. And so mm-hmm. if I don't have any problems to deal with, then this is a mute conversation. I don't know why we're having mm-hmm. it, which brings me to a quote in your book that I love so much. It says, the enemy is not each other. This is not white people versus people of color. No, the enemy is white supremacy and the evil one leverages that system for destructive purposes. It's a dark and mm-hmm. dangerous system and it must be opposed and dismantled at all costs. Mm-hmm. Now, I 100% believe everything you just wrote there. I think that people would say, well, white supremacy, I'm not in the KKK. And, you know, like, I'm not a white supremacist. And so I feel like maybe we need to 
talk about what that means before we can even go back and say like, oh, why does this matter for our theology? Like when you talk about the word white supremacy, what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, no, thank you. Because I do think there's all this kind of chaos in this conversation and these deflection strategies that I'm not saying we're doing, but there's things that take our eye off the important thing. And that's a common one. I think when we functionally define white supremacy by its most extreme manifestations, Mm -hmm. that's really problematic. Not that those aren't manifestations of white supremacy, but they're not what it is. Like really, when you look it up anywhere, white supremacy is just an ideology. It's a way of viewing the world. And though we associate, like you said, KKK or neo-Nazi with it, it's just a basic belief system that says whiteness is superior or whiteness Mm -hmm. is supreme over all other racial groups. And it's actually kind of built off of another phrase people will often hear is anti-blackness, which is really just kind of the reverse of white supremacy, which says it's an ideology that says white people and whiteness and anything white is what's inherently superior from God. Anything that's black or black people is inherently inferior from God. And so that's what the term white supremacy means. It's described in this ideology. So it can be as small as some of the examples we'd use, right, where we just inherently attribute superior qualities to a certain kind of worship style, a certain kind of preaching style, a certain kind of leadership style, and ascribe inferior qualities to a black style. Like that's just the everyday forms of how white supremacy works. So it's describing ideology. So those who are violent and extremists, they're taking it to its fullest zenith, but mm-hmm. that's not really what we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about what the ideology is and how it came to be. So when you go back to, now that you've said that, and we go back to that woman in your church and coming and saying, hey, this is what I'm hearing from people. What are some of the theological implications that you're looking for teaching your people that you're pastoring about why reconciliation matters and why it's important, even for those that are having a hard time feeling that they have a need for that? Because I think that's one of the things that I see that I would have said in myself years ago is, well, of course I believe in reconciliation, but I don't think I have a need for it because I don't think I've done anything wrong. And that's where it feels difficult, I think, for so many Christians to believe that there's a need for this. Does that make sense what I'm asking? It does. I'll try to make this point, but I'll say it first. It also shows, I think, where how deeply conditioned we actually are around mm. race. Yeah. Because what I do now, just a short to make the process faster, is help, especially anybody who's grown up in a religiously Christian conservative kind of space, it's almost expected that they've really adopted a stance against abortion and see that as a really important part right. of the expression of their faith, right? That's almost assumed. Yeah. So what I say, rather than even starting to try to convince about the problem of white supremacy and why Christians should do it, I say, you actually have already followed all the steps that are necessary. So like, let's take abortion, for instance. Abortion's not in the Bible, right? right? Abortion, there's not passages that say Christians should be against abortion and fighting for the unborn. Of course, I believe we should. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying there's a theological progression you went through. So even if you can't articulate, here's the theological progression that I think is right on. You understand that a baby in a mother's womb reflects the Imago Dei, reflects the right. image of God. And so you believe because that baby's an image bearer, because there's this social system, mm-hmm. this evil social system that's putting that Imago Dei at risk, it's your responsibility as a follower of Jesus, who's going to love neighbor as yourself, to stand up and rise up against that systemic annihilation of the Imago Dei, right? Like, can you track with that in terms of understanding how you've come to your pro-life position that most people say, I'm like, Going up against white supremacy is exactly the same progression. White supremacy attacks the Imago Dei in people of color. It actually attacks the Imago Dei in white people, too. It's just a different kind of attack because we're being told we're better than. It -hmm. attacked the Imago Dei in all people of color, black people in particular, because that's the history of white supremacy. And there are all these systemic realities designed to do John 10, 10, to -hmm. steal, kill, and destroy Mm -hmm. the lives of people of color, black people in particular. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, we should rise up. Like, tell me any part of that that sounds different than your pro-life stance. So I say, so really what we're contending with is a psychic break that happens somewhere where you were able to embrace it for the unborn, but it feels political or Marxist or social gospel or liberal or whatever the term is you've been taught to discredit it. It feels one of those things when, and I mean, really just, I'm not trying to minimize pro-life stuff, but numerically the threat level on human beings is much wider spread with white supremacy. And so it's bizarre, really, if you can catch your breath, take a step back. It's a bizarre that we can be so passionate about it when it comes, you know, at a birth level and so disconnected from it when it comes to human beings who are actually alive in our world and are suffering under this every day. So good, Daniel. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone take me down both roads of both sides and get to the same place. And so that is so good and so informative for people to understand because you're right, as Christ followers, we would go like, yes, of course we're against the killing of unborn children. Obviously, yes, we are anti-abortion, but yet we take that same logic and we somehow miss it someplace else. Here's my next question to you about that. This is a good one. I wonder if it's because 
we lose nothing by being pro-life and anti-abortion. Yeah. I think there's something to be lost. Right. Yeah. We don't have to wrestle with our own complicity. Okay. So let's talk about this because that's what I think. It just hit me that that would be the difference is that there is, we lose nothing by being anti-abortion, but I think reconciliation costs us something. So what does it cost us? Yeah. We don't have to go down this road, but just to name it, the other big one I would say is that American Christianity is its own distinct form of Christianity because there's never been a nation's history like ours where Mm. at the very foundation was about Christian expression, right? And also the very foundation was having to justify barbaric, really, um, treatment of Black people during slavery, Indigenous people during displacement, and some would even call it genocide. And so our Christianity grew up around racial trauma, and white Christians had to learn how to make sense of the noise, mm-hmm. of the moral, the moral noise that comes with becoming a Christian in the context of that. So I really do think there's something very distinct about our experience here as Christians, where we've had to pass down from generation to generation a way of understanding following Jesus against a backdrop of racial trauma. And I'm not saying it's completely distinct from other parts of the world, but there's something really unique about that as well. So we can go back to the other one. I just would name, that's that's a pretty big piece Mm -hmm. too, is we've had to learn how to Mm -hmm. become comfortable in a way that's different than like abortion, for instance. So what does it cost us as a follower of Jesus to enter into this reconciliation that, you know, of acknowledging maybe the supremacy that we have in our heart that we would have never even known? Because it does cost us something. Yes and no. It's just another thing that's just so frustrating for me is we don't, thought, you know, with, there's these things we embrace in the spiritual life that we then discard in terms of conversations like this, right? So in the spiritual life, it doesn't, we don't say it costs us something to acknowledge complicity with sin right? Like we would actually say that's the gateway to liberation, right? right? It's like saying, yeah. I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. I'm not trying to come to God with a clean record. I'm coming to God to make me well, to make me clean, right? So at that level, it doesn't cost anything if like, I mean, I realize people experience it. Like when I talk about repentance, that makes white Christians really uncomfortable. Like if you need to repent, you go for it. But I tell people I repent every day of my complicity with white supremacy. What I mean by that is not that I'm discriminating openly against people of color. What I mean by that is saying the lie around human value and human worth are in the atmosphere everywhere. And I'm breathing those in every day, which means I need to confess of my inhaling of that. I need to confess of my complicity of that. To me, I see that as liberative, not as something that costs us something, but I realize it's felt as a cost, which helping people get around that, I think is one of the real keys to it. I don't think it needs to, because I think if we just follow the same plumb line that we would with salvation itself, starting a conversation with recognition that I'm a sinner who's complicit (laughs) with Mm -hmm. evil, really, and needing Jesus to deliver me, that's not seen as costly in the Christian life, but I realize it's felt as costly. Maybe that's what I mean, is it feels like it's going to cost you something you know, to enter into those conversations. I mean, and honestly, sometimes it will. Sometimes you will lose some of your power. You will lose some of your influence when you're willing to distribute that evenly amongst people. Mm -hmm. That's what I kind of mean by that. But again, that should liberate us and bring freedom as well, as we're all Christ followers. At the felt level, the cost is, I don't want to be thought of as racist, and I detest that notion. At the felt level, the cost is, I don't understand the rules now, and I feel disoriented. I don't like that feeling. The cost level is, you start to wonder, was this passed on from my grandparents to my parents to me? And can I really wrestle with that? Like, those are things that feel costly. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of stuff that does immobilize people. So I guess I'm trying to do a dance here. Of, like, I realize there's a felt kind of cost to these. Ultimately, I still see all those liberties, but it can be disorienting. Well, tell me this, because... You write in the beginning of Wide Awake, which I was so thankful that you started with like, here's how I started and here's how I messed up and here's how I kept going. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a fear for so many people when they think about this work of reconciliation and repenting of what they might not even know they need to repent of is I'm going to mess up. I'm going to screw up. And you had to walk that road at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us about when you gathered all the people together and what did that look like for you? Yeah, one of the things, as you know, I emphasize in Wide Awake is that what often happens is for those of us white, I'll use my own story, that we go from complete apathy and indifference to suddenly become kind of aware of racial disparities. And then in a way that we can't even understand, something inside of us says, I have to be part of the solution. I have to help fix this thing, right? And so we move from complete misunderstanding of what race is to like suddenly trying to solve it. So for me, that meant trying to plant a community in Chicago, but that was before this church that I did, that was going to try to become culturally diverse and kind of contend with, you know, issues of justice that are affected people of color. And so I tried very hard. I was having a lot of trouble doing it. It was not nearly as easy as I thought. And so there's a black gatekeeper in the city who said, 
would you like to meet with some of the pastors who are doing this kind of work and have them hear your vision and give you advice? I was like, oh my God, that would be so absolutely amazing. So it was literally a white pastor doing the work, an Asian American pastor, Korean American, uh, a Latino pastor, Puerto Rican, an African American pastor and theologian uh, professor. And so I shared my vision. <laughs> if I'm honest, I think I expect them to go, wow, you're where amazing. did you come from? This is amazing, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, it's yeah. like the city's going to be forever different once we're once, so once glad you get you're older, here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so the Puerto Rican pastor went first, responded. He said, I'm trying to hear you. I really am trying. He's like, everything you say is so paternalistic. It's so hard for me to hear you. And I didn't even know what the word paternalistic meant. I wasn't sure if it was a compliment or an hint, but based on his tone, I realized it was probably not a good thing. So I wrote down paternalistic. I need to look that up and probably stop being. Uh, the Asian American pastor went next. He said, you keep talking about wanting to be culture diverse, but everything you talked about was in terms of black and white. Do you know anything about Asian people? Do you know about how broad the Asian American experience is? How many different countries are represented in that term? You know, I think you got a lot of work to do. So I jotted that down, learned about Asian Americans of all different backgrounds. The white pastor went next. He was kind of a blunt guy. He said, if I had a dollar for every white person who thought they were going to solve this problem in the city, I'd be a rich man right now. He said, if you're still here in five years, I'll be shocked just at that alone. And then the black pastor went last and he said, even if you were able to learn how to do this stuff, he said, in Chicago, with how deep the racial segregation goes here, there's not going to be black people who go to a church led by a white pastor anyway. So you'd be better off just giving up on this now, <laughs> going back to your own people. And um, that's when I realized that, yeah, this isn't just about waving the flag for cultural diversity or saying Black Lives Matter or something like that. This is this goes really deep. And I was going to have to go way deeper in my own theology and my own understanding of race before I was able to participate in a kind of a meaningful way. How much after that, because I don't know this, was it when you started your church that you're at pastoring now? It was only probably about a year after okay. that. Okay. But it changed the stand. The difference was when I started the first thing, it was to solve this problem. When I started my church, it was literally like, I need to humbly, like, I just mm. needed to get, I was at Willow Creek, this super fast growing yeah. church. So it was nothing against that, but it was this fast growing white church where I couldn't pause to ask these kind of questions. So I needed to be in a place where I didn't need to grow things fast mm. because I think that could be the antithesis of kind of the deep soul work that needs to happen. I'm yeah. not against growth or anything, but I just needed space to be able to like listen and learn. So I was still starting something, but in this case, it was with a team and it was 100% dedicated to like, I hope it helps some people, but it was really, it was about my own salvation process, you know, of like needing yeah. to see the Bible and Jesus more deeply. Yeah. What have you seen the best thing? And this is like such a broad question I'm about to throw at you, Daniel, but since that meeting with that team where you were, you know, kind of got the, you know, the wind knocked out of your sails and then you started your yeah. church and you have had a lot of growth. What personally has been the best thing? Because you said, selfishly, I needed to do some deep yeah. work here. What would you say has been one of the best things that has overflowed in your own life from this work that you've been doing? over the past couple of years. I really, that's why church. I keep coming back to Nicodemus because I let, even though I know Nicodemus must have been the wind taken out of his sails and upended, like the invitation was so beautiful, right? Jesus was saying, I'll give you all of me. Like, I'll show you who God is. Like the spirit of God will show you what my kingdom looks like if that's what you want, but you're going to have to lay down your own power, your own agenda to do that. Like, I feel like I know so much more about God. Mm. I know so much more about the Bible. I know so much more about how the world works. Like, I'm terrified of the limitations that were on me when I was in a homogenous setting. So yeah, that's the wonder for me of like, it's truly, I feel like I've seen God's kingdom in like such vivid color doing this. Yeah. And I would never trade that for anything. Uh, okay. This leads me to your next book, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. It released this year in September. And I have only read a handful of chapters of it, and I cannot wait to dive into it because I've already raved enough about how much I loved your first book. But this book is really kind of a follow-up to the first one. So if anyone's like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I'm loving this guy. I want to go get the book. I highly suggest, and I think Daniel would suggest as well, that you start with Wide Awake. So start mm -hmm. there yeah. and then jump into this one. So this is right. kind of a follow-up. Tell me what's the follow-up needed from the first book for this one. Yeah. So the first one is really about what, you know, again, I think it's, it's a bit of an internal upheaval to like get to the point. Bottom line, where I want somebody to be at the end of White Awake, I want them to say to love Jesus is to hate white supremacy. Mm. Like the two can't go together. Like I cannot love Jesus in this day and age without hating what white supremacy is. To love Jesus and to seek first his kingdom is to stand up against white supremacy. And that's really where that book ends. So like you said, if somebody's not there, like that White Awake is much more <laughs> relevant yeah. to where they're at. Yeah. But when somebody gets that point, we're like, no, I think I can say that. I think I can say I love Jesus and I hate what white supremacy is, but I have no idea what to do next. Yeah. Um, that's really where White Lies picks up is trying to help somebody understand what is white supremacy from a theological perspective. And it's built around practices, which is kind of a historic term for kind of aligning with the work of Jesus, right? Like what are ways I can practice getting free of it myself and standing up against this evil principality, you know, in a way that is joining what Jesus is already doing. Can you tell me about the parasite analogy that you start the whole thing with? And this is an analogy that comes from Dr. Willie Jennings, who's thought of as one of the most foremost um, 
public theologians on race, and he's at Yale University now. When he describes this ideology of white supremacy, that this kind of lie that white people are superior and black people are inferior, and then that lie says everybody in between, Latino, Latina, Asian American of different kinds, you know, that their value is tied to how close they are to either white or blackness. When he's describing that set of lies, he calls it a parasite which you know, most of your listeners know, a parasite's a nasty little organism that can't survive on its own, right? It has to attach itself to a host in order to be able to survive. And so that's interesting enough to think of it as kind of this nasty little thing that can only survive by attaching itself to something. But he makes a case that the host that it attached itself to for survival is Christianity, mm. which is a pretty terrifying kind Very of idea. Terrifying, yeah. But it's super enlightening for me because that's not saying anything about Christianity itself. It's saying that this nasty little evil thing had to attach itself to something. And if where it found safe haven, where it found its ability to survive is by attaching itself to Christianity. Mm. And it helps me understand not only white supremacy on a broad level, it helps me understand my pastoral work. Because what I see happening, at least in my work here, is like two extreme poles kind of forming where there's a lot of people leaving church there's different reasons people leave the church, but a lot of it that I hear is people can see this parasitic relationship between Christianity and white supremacy. They can see the way white supremacy has infiltrated Christian spaces. And they go, if Christian spaces are created safe hate for white supremacy, I have no interest in it whatsoever. But then what I see on the other side, and this is the world I come from, is a lot of people who grew up in the church, a lot of white people who grew up in the church, refuse to consider the possibility that white supremacy has parasitically attached itself to Christianity. And by refusing to even acknowledge the possibility, when they evangelize for Jesus, as they should rightfully do, because they've not thoughtfully considered the ways white supremacy has attached itself to Christianity, they end up evangelizing for white supremacy with equal vigor to mm-hmm. evangelizing for Jesus. And it actually doubles down the problem. Mm. And so though those two responses look really different at first glance, they come from the same problem, which is a refusal to do thoughtful analysis of the way that these lies have attached that set themselves to Christianity. And so the one is walking away because they refuse to decouple them, and the one continues to perpetuate because they refuse to decouple. And I'd say the metaphor is really helpful because it helps us just get to the work. Like as we learn to love the true Jesus, we learn to disassociate those lies of white supremacy. Mm. But to just blatantly ignore it, or just kind of, as we talked earlier, just to consider white supremacy as this extremist violent behavior, then that means you're not doing the work to decouple mm. these two, which mm. means that that, you know, you're just kind of moving along without realizing these lies have attached themselves in a way that's really harmful to everybody that it touches. So what you're saying is we could at least do the due diligence of the thoughtful work of seeing, hey, what does this look like in the past and how could I maybe have been complicit with this and not even know? If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike, and it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? 
Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Okay, so in this book, you talk about nine different practices. I'm going to read them and then I'm going to ask you a question. And I'll okay. tell you the question before I read them. I want to know which one was the hardest for you to write. Here we go. Stop being woke. Beware of diversity. Clearly define race. Attack the narrative. Duel with the devil. Tell the truth. Choose your friends wisely. Interrogate power and repent daily. I think there's a deep, there's both an awakening and a deep level of grief when I got to practice sex, which is tell the truth. Because mm-hmm. that one should sound the most basic of all of them. Like that's what Christians do is tell the truth, right? right. Jesus Christ is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Who the sun sets free is free indeed by truth. That one seemed like it should be the most basic of all of them. But after Wide Awake, you know, and that's been kind of used now in a lot of Christian colleges and universities and churches. So I worked out a kind of a deal with my elders that just once a month visit different schools and universities over these last three years to kind of join in their work. And I'd be brought in by somebody who's usually hired to be the diversity director, Mm -hmm. you know, who's appointed to kind of lead these conversations. And I think I suspected this, but it wasn't until I traveled up and down where it was confirmed. And this is a heartbreak for me. What I discovered is that I think you can make the case that where we're at now, that there's no environment more difficult to talk about the reality of white supremacy than in white evangelical spaces. There's no more environment more hostile to the conversation anywhere, secular or not, um, that are more hostile to conversations around white supremacy. There's no leader of an organization who will take a greater risk to talk about white supremacy than a pastor in a white church. If they start trying to tell the truth about what race is, they will risk people leaving, constant angry emails, budget collapsing. They even will risk their own job. It's true up and down. And so that was a heartbreak for me to realize that something as basic is told the truth, we are still up against a pretty enormous sense of resistance when it comes Mm -hmm. to having open dialogue about this subject matter. You know, you're so right. And it's so sad. I have a friend right now that I'm walking through. um, Her husband's a pastor and he will maybe potentially lose his job over speaking about these things. I've seen it happen so many times. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. And so the thing is, I always hear a lot of Christians who would say like, this is old. This is not still happening. This is not a thing. Why are we still talking about it? But then on the flip side, when I hear my friend tell me about her husband, who's potentially probably going to lose his job for talking about it, it makes me go, well, then why is that happening? If this is old news, if this is not still an issue, if this is in the past, why is it so difficult for a pastor to talk about it right now? Why is it so difficult? Why are pastors losing their jobs over this? I don't think you can understand race. I understand like you know, the spiritual dimension of this, right? The New Testament consistently, but one of the more famous passages would be Ephesians 6, where Apostle Paul says, right, we're not up against flesh and blood. We're up against principalities and powers of darkness. It's why I named this white lies. Like race mm-hmm. is built on a set of lies and lies belong to the evil one. Right? John eight forty four, Jesus says the devil's a liar. His native tongue is that of lies. He's the father of lies. And so it's actually a pretty fierce battleground when lies are at stake of being exposed, I think evil really doubles down to try to protect lives. And so that's why, yes, was is slavery still here in the same way? No, yeah, we moved on. But are the lies mm-hmm. that have allowed for these racial discrepancies, are they still around? Yes, they're still around. And they're protected. I think they're really protected by principalities. And so, of course, that should be the church who leads the path, right? The church is the mm-hmm. only 
anyone who has the actual spiritual authority to expose lies and to mm-hmm. contend with the darkness that protects them. But when the church actually can't call it a lie, like we have no chance, really, I mean, I don't want to be fatalistic, but it's almost like we have no chance in society mm-hmm. if the church can't collectively say race is built on a lie, Jesus is truth, we will not let lies rule at the end of it. We mm-hmm. will not stand for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like literally, I believe if a critical mass of the white church just said something that basic, that race is built on a lie, Jesus is truth, we will no longer allow lies to have safe haven in Christian spaces, we would, like, something serious at the Mm. spiritual realm and the social realm would start changing very, very quickly. And so I think every time, like, your friend, and I respect that people are doing this, I lament that people are losing their jobs, but what they're doing is they're walking up against this wall of lies, Mm. and they're doing the right thing, but there's not enough of them, there's not enough, we haven't hit that critical mass yet. And again, I think that's part of the whole New Testament, right? Like, Jesus will conquer evil eventually, right? He's already won at the cross, and he'll vanquish it eventually but right now we're still in this in between right where mm. the devil's trying to still kill and destroy and this is the i think this is the primary way mm. the devil's trying to still kill and destroy is through the lies of white supremacy and so until we hit a critical mass particularly of white because most churches of color can see the lies already mm. it's the white church that's having a hard time naming it as that and standing up yeah. against it yeah. and so what he's doing is what exactly has to happen but right now the price is still high for those who do it because it's not normalized yet yeah. that white yeah. leaders would say it's a lie and i refuse to stand behind a lie Mm. when I follow the one who is true. What's your encouragement? It's not even like we're talking, my friends, her husband's a pastor, but I hear this from people in all kinds of ministries, all kinds of workplaces, all kinds of families of feeling as though these conversations are not going anywhere. I'm losing friends. I'm losing positions. I'm losing ground. What is your encouragement for them? To me, it's why it's really essential to kind of ground this in truth and lies at the end of the day, because this isn't about a political agenda. We're not trying to move a certain kind of a thing. Specifically, what we're trying to do is follow the one who's true. Mm. We're trying to trust him that when he says, I am the way, I'm the truth. When you know truth, you will find freedom. And so I think there's probably something not super unique about this, where those who are committed to truth eminent are the smaller percentage, right? So we're not the first ones to be part of a movement towards following Jesus, where we feel like we're up again. I mean, it's the narrow way, right? It's how Jesus talked about it, right? It's the narrow way. So that's where the hope comes from, I think, is like, you know, if our hope was based on Supreme Court judges, or if it's Democrat Republic, you know, we're going to fall short every time. But if our hope yeah. is in being fully anchored and rooted in the one who is truth, mm-hmm. um, that jo- we join him and stand against lies, at some point, this is going to move, right? Like, if you were a 350-year mark, of Egyptian slavery, I'm sure everybody said this thing's never going to move, right? Like we're mm-hmm. never going to get out of this slavery. And for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that's when God moved was at the 400 year mark, right? Yeah. So at some point, this is going to move. This evil system is going to topple. So all we can do really is bear witness to it right now and root ourselves fully in truth until that day comes. Gosh, that's encouraging because even as you were saying someday this is going to move, I'm sitting here going like, really? Is it? Like this feels like, I don't know, but that's good news. You know, I mean, ultimately we know Jesus wins, you know, he's the ultimate victor here. Daniel, I'm such a fan of your work. I don't want to be like an over fan girl, but I'm such a fan of your work because you're pushing us white evangelical Christians into places that could be difficult and asking us to evaluate systems and ideas and things that we have thought were just the norm for so many years. And so I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and grateful for this new book that you're doing as well. Can I ask you something that I don't think I've ever asked anyone on this show ever to do? I'd be honored to be the first to be asked. You are the very first. I don't think I've ever asked anyone to do this, but will you pray for the listeners of this show? Because I told you before we started, and I've said this so often, I am so proud of the people who listen to this show because they are willing to engage in hard things. Mm. And for white Christians who maybe not had to engage in this, it can feel uncomfortable, you know, and it should, Mm. and it is, and all the things, but I'm so proud of my listeners. So will you pray for them as they Mm -hmm. just kind of try to untangle some things in their own world. I'll be honored. Thank you, Jamie. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, you teach us to call you Father. You're a good Father. So we praise you. We hallow your name. And then we take seriously what you tell us to do to seek your will. May your will be done. May your kingdom come on on heaven and on earth. We remember that when we do that, we're up against evil forces. You tell us to finish that prayer by asking for deliverance from evil, deliverance from the work of the evil one. And so this work we're doing right now is your work. And it's work that's contended with by spiritual powers. And so I think of when I think of knowing your will, your will be done, I think of another famous passage we know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, or to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we can know your will, God, your good and perfect and pleasing will. So help us to remember that this is not new in everyday and age. There are patterns of this world that are powerful, 
and that would draw us into their current if we're not rooted in the truth of who you are. And this is not as simple as just checking a box. We need to be transformed. We need to see different. We need to think different. We need to have the mind of Christ so that when these patterns of the world tug on us, which is what these realities of white supremacy does, it tugs on us to see the world in a certain kind of a way and to flow in a certain kind of a way. So we need to be transformed, God, so that we can know your will, so that we can bring heaven onto earth in our own lives and in society. So help us experience that transformation. Help us to be renewed in our mind to have and share the mind of Christ. Thank you so much for this ministry that Jamie is doing and for her books. May they continue to touch people, draw them to you. May we all continue to get free of the lies that would distort who we are, who our neighbor is, how the world works, and be fully grounded in your truth. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. That is going to be a blessing to so many people. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. We dwell on a lot in our lives. We dwell on some problems. We dwell on the past. We often wake up first thing in the morning and our minds are already dwelling on it. Whatever it could be of our crazy schedules, worrying about our health, tough periods of parenting, sadness over loss, the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes it seems impossible to do anything but dwell on it. That is why Dwell was created, because we can dwell differently. Dwell is a Bible memorization tool. You can easily memorize one Bible verse for every month. One of my favorite ones that we have memorized so far is Romans 12, 12, which says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And in fact, I keep the tag that they send me on my key ring and so I can look through them. And just today I pulled that up and said that verse out loud. Dwell offers memberships that starting at $9.95 per month. Some of the memorization tools that you get include temporary tattoos, vinyl stickers, art prints. You guys, this is a great, great, great thing for families to have, for teenagers to have, to help with little kids. Go to dwelldifferently.com. Use code Jamie15 for 15% discount on a prepaid membership. That's dwelldifferently.com. Daniel, I always end the show asking about what they're loving, what they're reading. What are you reading these days? I'm reading a book about race called Cast that I think is the top of the New York Times bestseller right now, um, Isabella Wilkerson. It's an interesting, it's a secular intellectual approach to this, but it's basically saying that white supremacy alongside with kind of the Nazi regime in the caste system in India, she says those are the three most powerful caste systems that the world has ever seen. So Mm. I kind of find that to be fascinating. And then we're actually doing a series by my friend, Rich Velotis, who's a pastor in New York, just did a book called The Deeply Formed Life. And I'm really enjoying that a lot, kind of looking at holistic life in Christ and how to be thinking on multiple dimensions where we need to be growing. Those are the two books I'm reading right now. I love it. So interesting. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Hour and for all that you're doing in Chicago and in your church and your family and for just Christians. And thank you for your work. Thank you. I'm super grateful for you as well, Jamie. So thank you. I'm a fanboy of your work as well. So thank you. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell, and the whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Guys, enjoy your weekend, whatever you have going on. Share the show with a friend. If you love this show, share it on Instagram, share it on Facebook, share it in a text message to your friend, however you can do it. I share shows that I love, not happy hour shows, but I'm a big podcast listener, and I constantly am sharing shows with friends that I think they should listen to. Don't forget, next week is our Read With Me live stream. You can still join it's not too late you can get the link for the gathering all the things text read with me all one word no spaces to 33777 that's read with me all one word no spaces just send a text with those words to 33777 guys next week is a great show i cannot wait for you to hear i can't wait for you to hear all the shows but this one was recommended to me this guest by a friend and she basically said you have to have her on the show and she was right 100 right tracy foster is coming on next week she's the co-founder and executive director of start which stands for stand together and rethink technology which brings parents and community leaders together to develop digital health for raising kids with healthy screen habits. I have told so many people about this interview. In fact, just this week, I was telling someone like, I interviewed this woman, Tracy Foster, and 
I can't wait to hear what she has to say. And I end every conversation with, okay, well, when the show comes out, you just have to listen to it. And here we are next week. Tracy Foster will be here. Highly recommend this show. It's a great conversation and about all of us can get something from it. Not just those of us raising teenagers, anyone that has technology, you will get something out of this show. You do not want to miss this. Guys, have a great weekend. Thanks for being here today. 